0: So, two months ago, we started this sermon series on the book of Romans. Have you guys enjoyed the book of Romans, going through it? Aren't you glad we're going through this? And I'm, I'm thrilled that we're in this book. This book is so packed with truthfully goodness. I mean, it's just packed to the gills with truth. The book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. This is likely the greatest theological treatise that we have on the gospel. And like a master lawyer, the Apostle Paul is weaving his case. He's essentially making his closing arguments. And so what is his case? What's the argument that he's trying to make? Namely, three words. We need Jesus. We need Jesus, amen? And so he's setting up his argument beautifully, leading his readers in a particular direction in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he takes a strategic turn I love feel preaching feel good sermons I do I love preaching about the grace of God the beauty of God or uh, the forgiveness and redemption that we have in Christ I love pre- I love preaching sermons that get lots of amens Thanks <laughs> just practice I guess Every pastor does you you show me a pastor that does not like Preaching a sermon that gets lots of amens, and I will show you what we in the theological world call a liar. I love preaching sermons that get amens, but I am not called to preach to get amens. I'm called to preach the truth. Yeah. <laughs> now, why am I saying this? I'm kind of giving you a little disclaimer because today is not a feel good sermon. This is some sobering, convicting truth. So much so that after the first service, I had someone hand me a pack of Kleenex (laughs) because I was just blubbery in the first service. It's convicting. This passage is convicting. But listen, good news is not good news unless it arises out of bad news. You don't believe me? How many of you are Cubs fans? Wow, no Cubs fans? Was it good news that the Cubbies won it all two years ago, won the pennant? Really, that doesn't get an amen? Okay. (laughs) I was like, I thought for sure that'll get an amen. But I know for a fact that the Cubs and their fans endured 108 years of hot garbage. I mean, season after season of heartbreak. But oh, doesn't it make that good news so good? Doesn't it make the victory so much sweeter? You know what I never hear about nowadays? I never hear about the curse of the billy goat anymore. I never hear about the June swoon in the 1970s. Remember that? They start off the season hot, and then in June, I never hear about 1984, the season that could have been, that should have been. I never hear about Steve Bartman anymore. Why? Because those things are irrelevant, The curse is gone. It's been usurped by victory. And this passage we're looking at today is heavy. I mean heavy. We're not talking about the curse of the billy goat. We're talking about the curse of sin. And initially, this is going to seem like bad news, terrible news. But hang tight. Hang tight with us. Because this is what makes salvation by grace so good. And the victory that we have in Jesus so much sweeter. So turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, therefore, you have no excuse. You can imagine the original readers were listening and even agreeing heartily with Paul's condemnation of wicked people in chapter 1. Paul is saying, oh, they're so wicked and our world is so wicked. And and the original readers are like, yes, yes. Go get them, God. Get them wicked pagans. But then Paul drops the hammer in chapter 2. He says, "Therefore you have no excuse." Wait, what what what? What? Paul, you're talking about them, right? You were saying them. I'm pretty sure I just heard you heard you say you. You mean them, right? They have no excuse. Not you. They have no excuse. No, no. You have no excuse. In Romans 1, 18 and 19, it says that God's wrath is coming against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Because although God is clearly evident, people choose to ignore him. They suppress the truth of his existence. And so, in verse 20, because of that, it says, so they are without excuse. And it words it that way. So they are without excuse. That's not how it's worded in chapter 2, verse 1. In the Greek you understand that they couldn't italicize their font. In the ancient Greek, they couldn't bold it. They didn't underline it for emphasis. And so what would they do? They would rearrange their word order sometimes to emphasize a particular word or phrase. They would put it at the beginning of the sentence to really emphasize it. It's kind of like how Yoda speaks, right? He could say, he is great. Or I'm really tempted to do the Yoda voice. I'm just going to go for broke. Great is he. (laughs) So Yoda is emphasizing the greatness of he. Great is he. Well, this passage is saying, without excuse are you. You're without excuse. In fact, the Greek word for without excuse was literally a legal term meaning without a defense, without an argument. So he's saying, you have no defense, you have no argument. As parents, we get this. Our kids give excuses all the time, right? They're really good at it. It's like innate within them. We don't even have to teach them to give excuses. He started it. He pushed me. He touched me first. Everyone's doing it. And as adults, we're not a whole lot better, right? We just give more elaborate, fancier sounding excuses. Well, nobody's perfect. To err is human. God's forgiving, and so what's the big deal anyway? And we give excuse after excuse after excuse. And when we try to give excuses, we are deliberately insulting God's holiness. So, Paul in this verse is emphasizing the fact that we have no defense. None. You understand what that means, don't you? He says in chapter 1 that no one could say, Well, I. I didn't know you existed, Lord. I didn't know you were there. God's existence is evident through his creation. We see that in chapter 1. And later on, we see through our conscience. God is evident. God is undeniable, and yet people snuff out the truth. They suppress the truth. They smother the truth. They blatantly ignore it. And rather than seeking God and his ways, they go headlong into idolatry, ungodliness, and unrighteousness. They don't want anything to do with God. So God gives them what they want, namely, eternity without him. They are choosing hell, this place where God's presence is seemingly unfelt, this place of God's eternal, ultimate wrath against sin. He says, okay, you don't want anything to do with me, you don't want me, fine, you'll have that for all eternity. And so they are without excuse. But now he turns around on us and he says, therefore, without excuse, are you. This is the state you're in when you have no self-righteous defense to stand on. I've literally preached sermons on the wickedness of our world and people are like, yes, amen, our world is so wicked. But the moment that I say, and we're all sinners, crickets. We don't amen that. Oh, we know it. But we don't want to own up to to our own depravity. It's like this dark shadow that hangs over us, this dark figure that looms over us that we just try to ignore. We don't want to acknowledge it. And Paul does not let you, or I should say does not let us off the hook. He says in Romans 2, Therefore, without excuse, are you, O man. Literally, O person. It's the Greek word anthropos. It's where we get our word anthropology. So he's not saying men, you're sinners, women, you're saints, sorry. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O person, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It would be unwise to expect the world to act like Christians, but Christians should not act like the world. A hypocrite is not someone who teaches good behavior or teaches good morals but fails to live out that teaching perfectly. If that were the case, I couldn't be up here this morning. No one, there's not a pastor on staff, there's not a pastor in this world who could preach God's word if we had to live it out perfectly So that's not the definition of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who teaches good behavior, sees others not living by that standard, condemns them, judges them for not living by that standard, and then they themselves don't live by that same standard. Hypocrites usually justify themselves. They disparage the behavior of others, but with complete spiritual blinders on, they justify their own sinful behavior. Oh, how hard it is to breathe under the mask of hypocrisy. Brendan Manning said it this way, the greatest single cause of atheism today in the world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is when an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Do you have spiritual blinders on? Maybe you condemn the moral decay of our society while your internet browser is filled with unsavory websites that you've clicked. Maybe you complain about the degrading family values in our schools and entertainment. Meanwhile, you fight like cats and dogs, vehemently, selfishly with your spouse, even threatening divorce. Maybe you scoff at the obscene amount of money the celebrities have in their gaudy mansions, but inside you is growing the infectious disease of greed and selfish ambition. How can we be righteous in one area of our life and so completely oblivious in others? It's complete and utter self-righteousness. Listen to me, friends. Listen to me. They are not the problem. We are. It's so easy to play the blame game and look down our noses at the world and point out its brokenness without looking introspectively at our own. This is why Paul talks about them in chapter 1 and you in chapter 2. He says in chapter 1, Therefore God gave them up in lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. But then in chapter 2 he says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on you, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He goes from talking about them in chapter 1 to you in chapter 2. He's talking about the rebel in chapter 1 and the religious in chapter 2. He's talking about the scoundrel in chapter 1 and the sanctimonious in chapter 2. Oh, how easy it is to pass judgment on others and remain in censorious self-denial. I want you to, to do something. I want you to point at your neighbor. I mean, just really give them a good point. Wag, their, wag your finger in their face. Just really get up there. Now, excluding your thumb, how many fingers do you have pointing at them? One. How many are pointing back? Probably three. Unless you're pointing like this, which would be weird. <laughs> Nobody does that. I noticed, I said in the first service, politicians do that. Maybe for good reason. <laughs> There's one finger pointing and three pointing back. See, the problem isn't out there. It's in here. The rebellious and the religious have the same problem. Depravity. God was to be on the throne of our hearts, but we didn't think he was enough. And so we put ourselves in his place. Self became God. And a cancerous decay occurs inside us that warps and twists everything that we hold dear And sin gets its dark, twisted, gnarly fingers around our hearts, warping everything that we see, altering how we view ourselves and how we view others, how we view the world. We cannot judge the wickedness of the world from up on our soapbox because we've all wallowed in the filth with the rest of the world. A couple weeks ago, the analogy was given on Easter, the illustration that C.S. Lewis gives. He says that, Imagine you have some children who are playing in a back alley somewhere and they're playing in the mud and the muck, the garbage and the filth and they're building mud pies. They're making mud pies. And someone goes to them and says, what are you doing? Wouldn't you rather go to the beach where it's beautiful, it's glorious, it's awesome? Wouldn't you rather take a vacation to the beach and they say, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine in the filth right here making mud pies. And his point is that our world Doesn't care about the gloriousness of the gospel, the gloriousness of grace. They're like, ah, I'm content here. I'm content in the filth that I'm in. But let's take that analogy further. Imagine that one of the kids says, hey, check this out. Look at my mud pie. My mud pie is better than yours. My mud pie is superior to yours. Well, that may be, but it's still a mud pie. How can we look down on others from our pedestal when the gospel drives us to our knees? The gospel uproots any air of superiority. Is our world depraved? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But we're not part of the solution. We're part of the problem. We're going to skip ahead to verse 5. We'll come back to verses 3 and 4. So let's look ahead to verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's quite easy to get someone to admit that they are a sinner. I mean, unbelievers readily acknowledge that they are sinners because they know that, hey, nobody's perfect. Anyone can acknowledge that they are a sinner. But it is God who must awaken a person to realize the gravity of their sin. And in this verse, it says that wrath is accumulating. It's building up. Whose wrath? Yours? Mine? No, it's God's wrath. Friends, this is terrifying. What a terrifying thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Our hard and unrepentant hearts are storing up God's wrath upon us. This word storing up is literally the same word Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Meaning eternal treasures are compounding in heaven as you live for Jesus in the here and now. But Paul is not talking about storing up treasures. Every single sin we commit, and how many do we commit? Every week, every day, every hour, every single sin we commit is building up compounding God's wrath against us if our hearts are hard and unrepentant. When you offend someone, the magnitude of the consequence of that offense is proportional to the greatness of the one you offended. That's a long sentence. Let me say that again. When you offend someone, the magnitude of the consequence of that offense is proportional to the greatness of the one to whom you have offended. I'll give you an example. If you see a baby with a lollipop and you snatch them out of, snatch that out of their hands, you're literally taking candy from a baby. You're going to reap the repercussions of that action, probably going to get a purse smacked upside your head from the mom, and rightfully so, and you're going to have to go, I'm sorry, here's your candy back. The punishment fits the crime, and it's proportional to the one you offended. Now, let's say that the Queen of England is in town. And the Queen of England has her entourage with her. She's riding in a parade through town and there's thousands of people lining in the streets. Security is everywhere. Now let's say you make your way through the crowds. You make your way through the security. You make your way even around the royal guards. And you run up to the convertible that she's sitting in and you grab her crown, put it on your head, and you take off running. First of all, that'd be hilarious. But second, you're going to be thrown down to the pavement, hands cuffed behind you, probably spend years in jail and have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in a fine at minimum. Because the punishment not only fits the crime, it is proportional to the one you have offended. Folks, we have offended a great, the great, and holy Righteous, most high, eternal God. And so we deserve an eternal, infinite, heavy punishment. Folks, we deserve hell. And the refusal to repent, the refusal to surrender and give up the notion of self-righteousness is a blatant refusal of God's redeeming love and forgiveness. Which is why self-righteousness is so deceptive and so insidious. Self-justification is damning. It's damning. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Wait a minute, this sounds like salvation by works, does it not? I mean, do good and you get good things. Glory, honor, peace, eternal life. Do bad and you get bad things. Tribulation, distress, wrath, fury. Is this salvation by works? No, what is Paul saying? Well, works are the lifestyle expression of the true nature of a person's heart. So he's describing the character of the person seeking God versus the character of a person looking out for numero uno. Looking out for self. Which means you can either be God-seeking or self-seeking. You cannot be both. And unfortunately, by our sinful human nature, we are all self-seeking. Meaning that we get what verse 8 says. For those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth. Do not obey Righteousness, we get wrath and fury. See, we play the comparison game to determine our righteous stature. Well, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm no Hitler either. I'm somewhere in between. And we think of big sins like murder, rape, treason, adultery. Well, as long as I don't do those things, I'm good. And that's not how Jesus defines righteousness. Let me ask you this, show of hands, how many of you have committed murder? Really? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus drastically expands our definition of murder. He says, if you've had an unjust, angry thought towards someone, you've committed murder. So, I ask again, how many of us have committed murder? There we go. How many of us have committed adultery? You see where I'm going with this, right? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if you look lustfully upon someone in your heart, you have committed adultery. So, how many of us have committed adultery? How many of you haven't raised your hand yet? That's called lying. How many of you have stolen something? How about blaspheming God? I feel like I need to call security because in this room, we have a room full of murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves, blasphemers, and lawbreakers. Oh, we can play the comparison game all we want as long as we are comparing ourselves to the right person, and that person is the righteous standard, that is Jesus, the perfect, spotless, blameless, righteous son of God. So are you as perfect and holy as Jesus? No? Then we deserve God's just wrath and fury. And God shows no favoritism. God shows no partiality. That word for partiality or favoritism is is a compound word. It's made up of two words, to receive and face, to receive face. So quite literally, it's saying that God will not be swayed by a person's face. I'm convinced that our oldest daughter, who turns four this month, I'm convinced that she's a Jedi. <laughs> and I say that because she has mastered this Jedi mind trick known as the puppy dog face. And nine times out of ten, it doesn't work on me. My daddy's shield is up. My daddy defense is. I'm immune to it. But every once in a while, she's able to sneak it in. I'll give you an example. So, some nights we'll say, Sweetie, you have to go to bed. You got to go brush your teeth. You got to go wash your face. You got to get ready for bed. And she'll say, But, Daddy, please, can I just stay up for a little bit with you and watch a little bitty, teeny, tiny cartoon? Her voice quivers, her lips purse. Her brow furrows, her eyes get big as saucers as they fill with tears. And then a tiny tear (laughs) strolls down her rosy red cheeks. Please, Daddy, please can I stay up and watch a little cartoon with you? And in that moment, here's what's going on in my head. (whistles) Woo, (whistles) woo, warning, warning, warning. We are under attack. Daddy's shields are down. Daddy's defenses are down. Puppy dog, attack. Puppy dog, look. We're taking on water. (laughs) And I give in. I'm helpless. Jedi mind trick. (laughs) But there is no such appeal that will work on the Lord. Politicians can buy votes, but God cannot be bought. Governments can be pressured, but God will not be pushed. Leaders can be bribed, but God cannot be swayed. And you will not be declared righteous because of your ethnicity, your race, your social status, your financial status, your political party, your gender. It doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're rich instead of poor, if you're male instead of female, if you're popular instead of outcast, if you're Republican instead of Democrat. It does not matter. God shows no partiality. He is just, and he will judge all fairly. So Paul is saying that no one could say, well, because I'm Jewish... I'm good. I'm exempt in our society, in our modern context. It might be someone saying, well, because I go to church, I'm fine. I have an excuse. I'm exempt from God's wrath. No, you're not. You cannot earn special favor with the Lord. All accolades and all attributes will not help in your defense, not church attendance, not religious background, not family heritage, not how many charitable deeds you have done, not how many times you read through the Bible, not how much you pray, not traditions, not the fact that you live in America, not the fact that you call yourself a Christian, not the fact that your grandmama is a Christian. All of that is self justification. And God sees through your religious facade. He shows absolute impartiality, He judges all evenly. It's been said that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Because no one can prop themselves up. No one can lift themselves up. You have to acknowledge you need Jesus. These verses are setting up the argument that we're all sinners in need of Jesus because we cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot save ourselves. And so this all points to our brokenness, our need to depend on someone else's perfect righteousness. So let's circle back to verses 3 and 4. This is kind of the crux of this whole passage. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, listen, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance. This is addressing those who think that they are above God's justice. Those who think, well, God is forgiving. God loves me. God is kind. He would never punish me for my sins. Well, Paul says you are half right. God is forgiving. He is loving. He is kind. But don't presume that because he is kind and patient that he is not also just. His patience is not a license to sin, and it is not widespread approval of our sinful lifestyle. He's merciful, yes, but his kindness should give us pause to consider his greatness so that we would throw up our hands and say, I don't deserve you, Lord. I don't deserve you, but I know that I need you. And so I surrender to you. I need you. In fact, the whole point of God being patient with us and showing us kindness and mercy is to lead us to repentance. Now, some of you may be in here and you're struggling with viewing God as this harsh, cold-hearted judge. But listen to me. God does not delight in our punishment any more than we as parents do when we have to punish our kids. In verse 4, we see a glimpse into the good news. We see a glimmer of hope. Think about it. If God in his infinite justice cannot tolerate unrighteousness, then how is it? How is it that we are not incinerated the moment we first sin? Because God is incredibly patient. And as the King James Version says, and long-suffering. I like that word. Long suffering. You ever been. With someone who is pestering and agitating you for a whole long time. Maybe you're on a family road trip and your kid is in the, behind you in the back of your seat kicking you. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you're just like, oh Lord, I'm suffering. I am long suffering. Eventually you reach your threshold, right? And you're like, I will turn this car around and drive home. You're long suffering for a while. And God suffers the foolishness of mankind for a long, long, long time. He's giving time for us to repent. See, God could have wiped us out in his wrath against sin, but he doesn't. The fact that we're all alive and breathing, the fact that we're all here this morning is an act of mercy and grace. His kindness is the catalyst to awaken repentance within us. Jimmy Needham says it this way, are you shocked at the penalty of sin? Be more shocked at the mercy of him. God's kindness is a beacon of grace flashing brightly. Repent. Turn to me. Turn to me. Turn to me. See, you must own up to not just the problem of sin, but your problem of sin. Repentance is brokenness over your sins. You have to acknowledge that you are under destruction and you cannot save yourself. Repentance is surrendering any notion of vain self-righteousness. I have found that there are three camps of people in a crowd like this listening to a message like this. There are the self-justifying, the self-pitying, and the self-crucifying. And the self-justifying will try to give a defense as to why they're actually righteous. I mean, they deflect blame like pew, Well, it's because of this person said this, or because I grew up this way, or because of my household. And they just cast blame, and they deflect, and they make excuses. They try to make a defense. Listen, if you're trying to do that here, have you been sleeping during the sermon? That's the whole point. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot give a defense. We cannot give excuses. But the self-pitying will hear this and say, woe is me. Oh, I'm such a wretched sinner. God could never love me. Why would he ever, if he's known what I'd done, thought, and said, why would he ever save me? You understand that both the self-justifying and the self-pitying are both forms of self-righteousness. And if that's you, either one, repent of those ways of thinking and acknowledge your need of Jesus. Oh, and by the way, repentance is not something that ends the moment we get saved. It's not like, well, I repented, I believed, done with that. No. Repentance, which is surrender, is constant. It doesn't end when you get saved. It's ongoing. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. How often? Daily. Daily take up your cross and follow me. He's saying that we should be, God, crucify my sinful flesh within me. Mortify the sinful desires that I have in my heart. I give it all to you. I surrender it to you. I give up this notion of self righteousness. I give up the, this, this thinking that I could save myself. I cannot save myself. I rest in the righteousness of Jesus. That's continual repentance and belief. And God's kindness leads us to repentance. And if self-justification is damning, listen, repentance is oh so freeing. It's freeing. There's nothing more freeing than saying, God, I surrender it all to you. Here's the garbage. Here's the mucky muck. Here's the junk of my life. Here it is. I give it to you. I surrender. I repent. And I trust in you. God's kindness leads us to repentance, and repentance is free. The whole point this morning is this. Paul is saying that the problem resides in us, but the solution is in him. Dr. John Perkins grew up in a sharecropping family on a southern plantation with an absentee father and a mother who died of malnutrition when he was only seven months old. And he remembers the sting of a white boy's BB gun and the frustration of knowing that he could not fight back. Perkins spent most of his life working in under-resourced black communities held down by white segregation and oppression. His family were bootleggers and gamblers, not religious people at all. And so Perkins grew up not believing in God. The church was just another entity in the world. His antipathy toward white men flared hotter when his older brother Clyde, safely home from World War II, was shot and killed by a town marshal. His brother's crime? Blocking the marshal's club from hitting him a second time. Oh, and the behavior that warranted such a clubbing? Talking too loudly. Perkins was rightfully furious. And to keep him safe, his family sent him west to California. And there, his son, Spencer, began attending a Bible class in a local church. He eventually brought his dad, John, along. And Perkins writes this, In that Sunday school, I finally met Jesus. Almost immediately, God began to do something radical in my heart. He began to challenge my prejudices and my hatred toward others. I had learned to hate the white people in Mississippi. And if I had not met Jesus, I would have died carrying that heavy burden of hate to my grave. But he began to strip it away, layer by layer by layer. Early in 1970, Perkins is headed toward the Rankin County Jail in Brandon, Mississippi. And he's going to post bail for some civil rights demonstrators who were arrested. And before he could even get into the building, highway patrol officers met him with their fists. Perkins survived the night, but five months later, the stress of that event prompted a heart attack and later ulcers. So he spent long hours recuperating in a hospital with a whole lot of time to think. And he's thinking to himself, the gospel is supposed to be powerful enough to shatter hatred and bigotry, and yet hatred and bigotry is alive and well in this community and even in the churches. He's plagued with that thought. And after thinking for a while, though, he starts to see flickers of hope. God reveals to him his doctor was white. One of his attorneys was white. White people supported his ministry with their money and their time. Two white people had even been arrested and beaten alongside him. Perkins wrote this. He says, God used the black and white nurses and doctors at that hospital to wash my wounds. For me, they were symbolic of the people who had beaten me. What they did healed more than just my broken body. It healed my heart. Oh, how beautiful it would be if we could wash one another's wounds from the evil of racism. For the last 48 years, Dr. John Perkins has been a leading voice for racial reconciliation in communities and in churches. See, God's kindness leads us to repentance. And that affects our whole outlook. We see ourselves as part of the sin-shattered brokenness in our world. And we see others with compassion and love as fellow broken people in need of a restoring Savior. Let's do this. If you are a ministry director, campus elder, or a lead elder, would you please stand? I know there are a few in here. Would you just move to the sides? If you're a pastor, if you would go ahead and come on down front. So we're going to have a time of prayer, specifically prayer of repentance. We're going to have a time where we're just going to say, God, I surrender all the junk in my life to you. And my gut feeling is that there are some in here who, man, you need to just surrender to the Lord. You need to hand that over to God. Say, here it is. Here it is. Take it. I can't be righteous on my own. I rest in the righteousness of Christ. And so maybe you need to pray with someone. There'll be someone on the sides. I'll be down here. There'll be other pastors down here. We need to do business with God this morning. We need to hand over whatever we need to hand over and surrender to him and ask God, would you give me a heart of repentance and faith? I'm going to read... A prayer from this book called *The Valley of Vision*, which is a collection of 17th, 18th-century prayers. And as I read this, would you just close your eyes and would you pray this prayer with me and think about the words? And after we're done, we'll sing a song. During the song, if you need to pray with someone, there'll be people around. O, oh, changeless God. Under the conviction of your spirit, I learned that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. And the more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, Lord, I have a wild heart. And I cannot stand before you. I'm like a bird before a man. Oh, how little I love your truth and your ways. I neglect prayer by thinking that I've prayed enough. i prayed earnestly by knowing that you have saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lusts that Christ's blood cleanses them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching, churches, Christians, but lives unholy. My mind is a bucket without a bottom. With no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well but never holding water. My conscience is without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. My memory has no retention. And so I forget easily the lessons learned and your your truths seep away me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. All these sins I mourn, I lament, and for them I cry pardon. Work in me a more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross Oh god Oh god would you work with repentance in our hearts daily continually Jesus would you crucify our sinful flesh within us So we know by faith as you died on the cross we die to our old self, and by faith, as you rose from the dead, we are given new life. Maybe we realize that gospel truth every second of every day, and may it bring us to our knees. Never in self-righteous judgment to others, never feeling haughty or superior, but may we, in humility, come before you, knowing that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. So we need you. We declare. Oh, Jesus, we need you. All this we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus.